Hi, welcome back to Bible Stories for Heathen Children. I'm Robbie. Um, I hope the audio is okay today. It's raining. I have picked a lull in the rain, I think, but it's still raining and will probably be raining for the next three days. So I figured I'd go ahead and try to get this. Um, I did some audio tests and I think it's basically the same as normal. I don't think the rain shows up too much. Okay, so we did some stories about Jesus last week, and this week uh, we're going to start the end of the Jesus story, the part that's sometimes called the Passion story or the Easter story. It's a really long story, not because it takes a long time to happen, most of it takes place within about a week, but because so many things happen and there are so many characters. It's kind of convoluted, and if you read any one gospel, you'll think I've gotten the story wrong, especially if you're like one of those people who watches a movie and is like, oh, it's not like the book. I totally was one of those. And that's because the the four gospels do not all agree on what happened and when. Um, It's kind of complex and convoluted to try to synthesize them all. So my spouse, who did most of the writing on this, and I, who had the vision and did the final revisions and stuff, we have agreed to just try to present a cohesive narrative and not even try to make clear which gospel we're drawing from at any given time. If I wanted to, there's a lot of, ooh, these two things don't agree. So, you know, ooh, maybe not factually, historically accurate. Um, not even going to bother with that this time because it's so convoluted. If you're interested, you can read all the Gospels. It's a lot of text. There's some other issues, too. Uh, some of these characters are from history, so that's one angle we could try to look at these stories with. But I'll probably only point out when the story doesn't make sense with history, um, especially when it's the story is being anti-Semitic, which which will come up um, a bit in this episode, I think. Another issue is that this story, this Easter story, is the most essential myth of Christianity. But people don't all agree on what it means to them. Throughout history, so many different groups have told this story so many different ways, with so many different translations, and many different agendas in their telling of the story. Because of how much of that there is to consider, I will not be able to thoroughly discuss even a fraction of those considerations. Though uh, I might make occasional interjections about how certain people use a certain aspect in the story of the story in their religious worldview. My main goal with these episodes is to share with you an interesting version of a culturally significant myth. So uh, that's that's my main goal here. Um, And I don't have time for all the other stuff because it's a big story. Uh, If you're confused about anything, uh, you can ask me or have your parents ask me a question on Facebook or Twitter or Patreon. My kids usually have questions at the end of episodes. Uh, sometimes their questions ask for details that actually aren't in the text. Um, but even then, I may have a th- theory to share. And sometimes the question is actually something I can confidently answer. So uh, hit me up with your questions. I'm happy to take a shot at answering them. Before we start the story, we need to talk about the Messiah. The word Messiah comes from Hebrew, the ancient language of the Jews. You also hear the Greek version of this word, which is Christ. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. Remember way back in episode two, um, the episode about David, when God told the prophet Samuel to appoint a new king, and Samuel went through all of Jesse's son before finally settling on David, and then he anointed David with oil? Yeah, that's basically the significance of Messiah, anointed one. It means someone God has specially chosen. Uh, David... David did become king, of course, and he and his descendants reigned for hundreds, reigned. David did become king, of course, and he and his descendants reigned for hundreds of years before eventually their kingdom was attacked and destroyed, and most of the people were taken away, exiled, to the far-off land of their conquerors, Babylon. 
There's some cool stories there that I'll get to eventually. Many years after that, some of them were allowed to come back to the old land, the land of Israel, and live there again. But the Israelites, or the Jewish people, didn't have a kingdom anymore. Now they were always under someone else's rule. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks. That's when the story of Maccabees happened. And in Jesus' time, they were ruled by the Romans. The time of the exile um, was when most of the Jewish Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, was written. I, I didn't actually know that. I didn't know that. My husband put that in here. Um, and many of the people who wrote the books of the Old Testament had hope that God would eventually deliver them from being ruled by other people. They wrote about the hope that God would send a person to save them, a king, one of the children of the children of David, who would defeat people oppressing the Jews and set up a new kingdom. That person is known as the Messiah or the Christ. At least that's what the writers of the Gospels wrote, that the Messiah would be a person and that many people in Israel were hoping for him to come. You might remember that from um, the Christmas episode, actually. That's a common theme in that episode. Um... The writers of the gospel were Christians, which literally has the word Christ in it. They were very invested in the idea of the Christ or the Messiah as being a deliverer who was foretold in the Old Testament. Uh, many religious Jewish people don't, didn't and don't actually think of the Messiah as necessarily being a person, perhaps more of an idea, the goal of making the world better and making people more free. But um, we're retelling the stories from the gospels, so we're using the gospels perspective for this mostly. Uh, it probably doesn't come, it's, it's not really a spoiler, I think, that according to the Gospels, many people believed, many, many people in Jesus' day believed, or at least hoped, that Jesus was the Messiah, the person sent by God to save the Jewish people. In the Christmas story, we talked about how Jesus was said to have been a direct descendant of David, and he was born in Bethlehem, the town that David was from. An angel had appeared to his mom and dad before he was born and told him to give told them to give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Then there were the shepherds and wise men and stuff and, and the old people in the temple. Um, and eventually Jesus grew up and became an adult. The Bible doesn't tell us much about his early life. It seems he worked in his hometown of Nazareth as a carpenter, like his father Joseph, making things out of wood. When he was 30 years old, he left home and began to travel around the land of Galilee, which is basically the northern part of ancient Israel where he lived. John the Baptist, who was very famous in the land and respected as a great prophet, told the people that he was preparing the way for Jesus. That is, the gospel version of John the Baptist did that. Um, he called Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The idea of a lamb taking away sins comes out of the Jewish Bible. In ancient times, when someone sinned, meaning when they did something that displeased God, often they were required to have a lamb killed and its blood sprinkled on them to remove the guilt of their sins, so God would no longer be angry with them. Many religions had similar beliefs, so John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is a case of, you guessed it, foreshadowing, like a shadow, but before. Jesus began to gather followers, his closest friends who traveled with him everywhere. Um, they were called the Twelve Disciples, or sometimes just the Twelve, because, you know, there was twelve of them. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed people who were sick, and he taught people how to follow God. He was really good at healing and really good at talking, so large crowds gathered wherever he was. People wanted to see this intriguing man, and they wondered, could he be the Messiah? Do you remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? I told that one, uh, did I tell that one around Halloween, maybe? I don't remember. Anyway, uh... You can go look it up, and that's where we're going to begin the Jesus story. You see, a lot of people were there when Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb and commanded, Lazarus, come forth! And then Lazarus 
walked out from the tomb in his burial wrappings. And um, most of the people who saw it believed in Jesus as the Messiah, the one sent by God to save the Jewish people. But some of them went and told the whole story of what had happened to the Sanhedrin. Remember, in the Gospels, the Sanhedrin are the religious leaders set up as the bad guys who hated Jesus' teachings, despite actual historical accounts of their beliefs and as opposed to Rome, who are definitely painted as oppressors, but not Jesus' actual antagonists or really his concern at all, which is kind of interesting. So anyway, the people told the Sanhedrin, the group of religious leaders, about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And the Sanhedrin had a meeting, and some of them were like, what are we going to do about Jesus? He's performing all these miracles, and people keep saying he's the Messiah. Um, and people think the Messiah is going to save Israel from oppression, so like anti-Rome. So if this keeps up, the Romans are going to hear about it. Then they'll crush all of us, and we won't have any freedom anymore. And then one of them named Caiaphas spoke up. You'll want to remember this name, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. That's the group of leaders who were wealthy and cozied up to the Roman rulers as opposed to the Pharisees who were more common folk. But Caiaphas wasn't just any Sadducee. He was the high priest, the most important person in the Jewish temple and one of the most powerful religious leaders. He said, you know nothing at all. Don't you understand that it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish? And he made a prophecy, a special message that comes from God, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not just in Galilee and Judea, but all the Jewish people scattered throughout the world to bring them together and make them one. Him. Side note, this is supposed to be a true prophecy, just not the way Caiaphas meant it, because irony. So Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, was resolved to defeat Jesus. And from that day forward, the religious leaders worked to figure out how they could have Jesus killed. And they gave orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, they should tell the Sanhedrin so they could arrest him. An important Jewish festival was coming up, the Passover, when many people would gather in Jerusalem, the ancient capital of Israel, where the temple was. The Sanhedrin hoped that Jesus would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then they could make their move and get rid of him. Well, Jesus heard about this, and when he heard it, he stopped going out in public. He did what we might now call lying low. He and his disciples went and stayed in a remote village. He wasn't planning to lie low forever. He didn't he did indeed intend to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he foresaw exactly what was going to happen there. He was going to let it happen or make it happen, only he didn't want it to happen at the wrong time. So, hence the lying low. One day he called his disciples to him and asked them, who do people say I am? This was a major topic of conversation throughout the country. Who exactly was Jesus? A lot of people thought he was one of the prophets from hundreds of years ago, brought back to life to teach by God to teach the people and do miracles. Some thought he was the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven. Some thought he was John the Baptist, the prophet who'd been recently killed by Herod. The disciples gave all those answers to Jesus' question. He had a second question ready. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Uh, they probably looked at each other nervously. They knew what they hoped, of course. They hoped he was the Messiah. He was the special chosen one who would deliver the Jewish people. But did they believe it? Could they say it to Jesus' face? Simon Peter, the one who had walked on water with Jesus, spoke up. He was not usually shy about saying what he thought. He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus was pleased with Peter. He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for what you have said wasn't revealed to you by humans, but by my Father in heaven. 
That's how Jesus referred to God as his father. He continued, and I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the doors you lock on earth will be locked in heaven. And the doors you open on earth will be opened in heaven. And then he warned the 12 not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He also started to tell them what was going to happen next. We're going to Jerusalem. And when we're there, I will suffer many things at the hand of the religious leaders and I will be killed. And on the third day, I will be raised to life. The disciples were already pretty worried about something happening to Jesus. They knew that powerful people wanted him dead. They don't seem to have really heard the part about rising from the dead. They were fixated on the part about him being killed. And once again, Peter was the first to speak up. He said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus, who, you know, was just finished talking about how blessed Peter was, immediately turned on him and said, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, he called Peter Satan, like the devil. That's harsh. You're a dangerous trap for me, Jesus said. You're thinking from a human point of view, not from God's. And then he told his disciples that following him was not going to be easy. He was going to be killed, and if they wanted to follow him, they should be ready to be killed too. That's pretty intense. Although he wasn't actually intending any of them would be killed. Um, but he was trying to teach them about sacrifice and humility and stuff, and to prepare them for what he knew was coming, even while wanting them to recognize he was the Messiah and basically the best, most holiest person ever. So the disciples spent a lot of time arguing among themselves over who was the best at following Jesus and being the second most holiest. They wanted to figure out if and when Jesus did become king, who would be the most important servants in his kingdom. Maybe it seemed like Peter had the edge after he pleased Jesus by declaring that Jesus was the Messiah, but then Peter immediately put his foot in his mouth, like an expression, by telling Jesus that his whole death and resurrection plan was a bad plan even though, frankly, all of them were all more excited about the maybe Jesus becomes king plan than the Jesus dies plan. Um, but two of the other disciples named James and John, um, they were brothers, and they were, along with Peter, the disciples who probably knew Jesus the best, which is why what they did next doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Their idea was, if we ask Jesus to let us be the most important disciples, that will make it seem like we are selfish. And of course... We are not selfish, so we'll ask our mom to ask Jesus. So they did. And they got their mom to go to Jesus. And she kneels down in front of him with James on one side of her and John on the other side and says, please do a favor for me. So Jesus says, what do you want? Unlike Herod in the last story, he's like, yeah, I'll totally do any favor you ask for. Like, he doesn't do that. He's just like, what, what do you want? He's going to figure this out before he promises anything. And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at, the, at your left in your kingdom. That would be a way of indicating they were most important. Have you heard the expression right-hand man? This type of thing is where it comes from in the ancient world. The person who sat at the king's right hand with the king's most important or most trusted servant, the number two. And then the person sitting at the king's left hand would be the next most important, the third most important person in the kingdom. So, does this plan work? Well, as is often the case with Jesus, he does not give a direct answer, at least not at first. He says to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? This is an expression that Jesus sometimes used, which meant, can you suffer as much as I'm going to suffer? And James and John were not like expecting that question. They're like, oh yeah, definitely we can. 
And Jesus says, uh, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. Again, he means, he means God. And when the other um, 10 disciples heard about James and John using their mom to try to get special favors from Jesus, they got like super mad at them. And Jesus heard them all arguing and calls them together. And he says, the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the name for non-Jewish people, uh, you know, like me. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They're always making sure everyone knows who's boss, but that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant, just as I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so now Jesus and his disciples made their way towards Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Their road, road went through Bethany, a small town just outside Jerusalem, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. A lot of people heard that Jesus was in Bethany and the crowds came to see him and also to see Lazarus, who was famous too because of being raised from the dead. And Caiaphas and the other priests thought maybe they should kill Lazarus because he was the big reason so many people were following Jesus. Like, Jesus could have just brought him back again, but whatever. Anyway, in Bethany, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. When people ate dinner during Jesus' time, typically they didn't sit on chairs around a table. Instead, the table would be a few inches above the ground or even a tablecloth on the ground and people would lie on their sides around the table to eat. So Jesus and Lazarus and the others were reclining around the table and Mary came into the room and brought a bottle of very expensive perfume. And she brought it to Jesus and she knelt down and she poured the perfume on Jesus's feet and then wiped his feet dry with her hair. The fragrance of the perfume filled the entire house and this caught everybody by surprise. Except Jesus, who was hard to surprise. No one could understand why Mary had done this, and as often happens when people don't understand something, they got angry. The most angry person was one of Jesus' disciples, one we haven't met yet. We've seen Peter and James and John, but this member of the Twelves was, was named Judas Iscariot, and he's pretty important to the story too. He angrily said, It takes most people a year to make as much money as that perfume is worth. She should have sold it and given the money to help poor people. Important information here. Judas was the treasurer for Jesus and the disciples, meaning he kept their money bag, and if someone needed money, he's the one who'd give it to them. And he liked to secretly take some of the money in the money bag for himself. So if Mary had sold the perfume so that the money could be given to the poor, well, someone would need to be in charge of giving the money to the poor, and you would have been better able to do that job than Judas. And then, you know, he could have taken some of the huge amount of money for himself, too, maybe. Uh, some of the other people in the room started to repeat what Judas was saying. They were getting more and more angry at Mary. But Jesus put a stop to it. He said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. You will always have the poor with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Judas said nothing more, but he may have felt humiliated and now may be angry at Jesus too. So, now you've met several of the main characters in the story. You've heard a lot about Jesus um, at this point. But Peter, James, and John, mostly John, and Caiaphas, and Judas Iscariot all play important parts in the gospel narratives. So now you've met them, the stage is set. Next week, Jesus enters Jerusalem, but probably not in the way you might expect. Hint, he doesn't walk. Uh, that is all for today. So come back next week, come back every week until Easter. Um, 
because we will have new episodes. It's going to get exciting. It's going to get dramatic. There might be some intense episodes um, on, on Easter Sunday. I will actually have the Easter episode up that will kind of be a nutshell version and the end of the story. So, uh, you know, look forward to all that. Thanks so much for listening to Bible Stories for Heathen Children. Our theme music is Wholesome by Kevin McLeod and Darkest Child, also by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution. Until next time, shine on, Star Child. Star Child.